your heart long for that glorious day. Today that we will rejoice in for this life and the life to come. If you open your Bibles with me, we're going to sing that same note for about the next 40, 50 minutes. So I hope your hearts are prepared to rejoice in that with me. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. I want to read our text and then pray for us. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. God's word speaks. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Heavenly Father, our hearts eagerly anticipate your return. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that you would give us a clear vision of your Lord, Jesus Christ the one who reigns and rules over all things, that we would see his mighty power, that we would rejoice in all that Christ is, our Savior, our King, the one who reigns forever, that we would bow the knee to him, that we would live according to his rule and reign today. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Growing up in a military household, I was really proud of my dad, and that symbol of the country my dad served was the American flag. And so I loved the American flag, I loved being an American, and in the public school there was American flags in every classroom. And every day on the intercom you would stand up and you would do the Pledge of Allegiance. And it's this sort of Pledge of Allegiance that goes on in the life of every citizen. It's an allegiance to a higher authority. It's an oath that we take as citizens to commit to live as citizens of the United States of America. Being a citizen is not meant to be some sort of hoop that you jump through so you don't get kicked out. It's meant to be a declaration of total devotion, a commitment to loyally embrace the authority of your homeland. It both receives the joyful blessings of citizenship and pursues living in a way that upholds the rule of the land. To be a citizen is not meant to be a mere title, but rather a lifestyle. It's a way of living that reveals where your loyalties truly lie. And in this letter to the Philippians, Paul has been calling believers to live in a certain way, to live as joyful servants of Christ. And in our passage, Paul is conveying this central truth. Servants of Christ must walk as citizens 
of heaven. This is who we are in Christ. We are, by the blood of Christ, citizens of heaven. And it will be evidenced in the lives we live who it is we serve. Paul shows us the necessity of this walk by providing three instructions for walking as citizens of heaven. But before we jump in, we must remember what Paul has been talking about up to this point. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul called these beloved believers in Philippi, he says, to rejoice in the Lord. And to teach them about rejoicing, he uses his personal life as an example. In verses 4 through 6, Paul listed a multitude of reasons he had for confidence in his own accomplishments. And in verse 7, he concludes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in treasuring Christ supremely, Paul declares this singular passion and focus in verse 14. He said, one thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When you are overcome by the infinite value of Christ, you count everything as loss and press on towards Christ's likeness. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. And it's a delight in all of Christ that really rejects self and runs towards Christ. In verse 15, Paul instructed these believers to think this way, to have the same mindset and the same attitude. And now in verse 17, Paul emphasizes not just our thinking, but also our living. He writes in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The first instruction on how to walk as citizens of heaven is that citizens of heaven walk by following godly examples. Paul's build up to this invitation involved him pulling back the curtain on his own thinking and feeling and personal living. And then he says, Brothers, follow my example. Paul's evident love for these fellow saints caused him to open up about his own walk with Christ. And he did this so that others might see the path and follow in his steps. Paul would give a similar command in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. He writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's not saying there is something special about me. I'm the only one that has the corner of the market on this sort of growing in Christ-like thing. I've got it figured out, so everybody eyes on me. No, he's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And it's clear here in verse 17 that it's not exclusive to Paul. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This us here likely refers to at least Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom he lifted up as model humble servants of Christ at the end of chapter 2. These were faithful churchmen who evidenced maturity in Christ, both in their affections and their actions. And Paul calls them to focus on mature believers who walk in this way. Watch the way they live and walk the path they walk. The author of Hebrews speaks to this call to follow 
in chapter 13, verse 7, saying, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. As believers, we are instructed repeatedly throughout Scripture to follow godly examples. In my own life, reflecting this week, I thought back to my early married days. I was still a college student, and I was married and doing a part-time job. My wife was working full-time so that I could finish up school. And while doing all of that, I still loved soccer. So I also played soccer, and I had a very godly man who was a soccer coach. And naturally, we called him Coach. So Coach invited my wife and I, a young married couple, living on love, not a lot of money, over for some food. We said yes. <laughs> We'd be delighted. And it wasn't an invitation that said, hey, I want to invite you over because I want you to watch the way I live. But I respected this man. I saw the way that he coached me, that it wasn't about just a game. It was about spiritual warfare, about being a godly man despite the circumstances on the field. And so I go over to his house and I, I can't but envision it like it happened yesterday, although it was over a decade ago. And we walk around the park and talk about what God's doing in my life because he cared about that. We sit around his dining room table and there's a hot meal present and he says, no, we're going to pray. We're going to recite scripture together and then we'll partake. The way he loved his wife, the way he led his kids in family worship as they sat around reading God's word, we just... We got to be a part of all of this. And it made an imprint on my life. It said, that's what it means to be a godly husband. That's what it means to be a godly father. That was an important example in my life. Think back on some godly examples you've had in your life. How the Lord used a more mature believer to embody truth revealed in God's word. To have somebody evidence faith in God before your very eyes, it makes a lasting impression. It's as if the word of God is an anvil and this godly example is a hammer. And the Lord takes it and just bends your life around the word of God. Say, this is what it looks like to follow my Lord. Conforms you to the word of God. God has graciously given us godly examples to help us walk towards Christ-likeness. And there are dozens of godly examples in this very room. But it often takes time to observe. It takes courage to be vulnerable. It takes humility to be teachable. But it's worth it to follow after our Lord Jesus Christ. Growing in Christ's likeness is not something we do merely in isolation. It's a group project that is done amongst the body of Christ. But not only do we have the blessings of godly examples within our church body, we also, as we say, stand on the shoulders of giants. There are saints who have gone before us who have finished the race. They have kept the faith. And we would be encouraged and strengthened to see how they walked. Jonathan Edwards, a famous theologian in the 18th century, he was facing an early death at the young age of 54. And listen to what he told his children. It seems to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. You are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an encouragement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. 
His last words were, trust in God, and you need not fear. Friends, that's a man whose love for God radically shaped his view of parenting and his entire life. And when we see his example, we ought to say, that's a man who knew his citizenship was in heaven. And I want to walk like that. Are you watching godly examples that the Lord has placed in your life? Do you make time for these opportunities? Is it a priority? If we at Redemption Hill are to be presented before our Lord as mature in Christ, we must labor to live as citizens of heaven who follow godly examples. Paul instructed these beloved saints to keep their eyes on godly examples and to walk in the steps they take. And he did this because he knew this eternally significant truth, that truly there are only two ways to live. In the remaining verses of chapter 3, Paul wisely contrasts these two ways of walking. In verse 18 and 19, Paul begins by showing the danger of walking as an enemy of Christ. Look with me starting in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The second instruction we find is that citizens of heaven walk not as enemies of Christ. In persuading these believers to follow godly examples, Paul places before them the spiritual realities of those who are enemies of the cross. Paul's personal tears evidence the grief and compassion he had for those who reject Christ as their Lord and Savior. To explain his call for believers to imitate his example, Paul gives a wise and sobering assessment of those who walk as enemies of Christ. Wisdom always looks to the destination to determine which path to take. We see this same sort of compassionate pleading from the wise father in Proverbs 2. He warns his son to not go after the forbidden woman, and he alerts him, her house sinks down to death her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. And Paul says, when teaching these believers the importance about walking by godly examples, he warns them with tears, do not walk as enemies of Christ. Their end is destruction. Jesus would warn of this in his preaching on the Sermon of the Mount as well. He says, enter by the narrow gate, For the gate that is wide is a way that is easy and leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The Apostle John recorded in Revelation 21.8 that he heard the Lord declare while seated on his throne, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers and the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The life you live is evidence of your eternal destination. Not because your life is put on some sort of scale and it's weighed out your good deeds and your bad, no. But it's because how you live reveals who you worship. 
It reveals who you worship. And that is the next description that Paul gives about these enemies of the cross. Look again in verse 18. He says, but their God is their belly. This is someone who worships their own appetite, someone controlled by their self-serving desires. This is the basic form of all sin against God, to worship the creation rather than the creator. Those who reject Christ are destined for hell because they're worshipers of self. That's why Paul has been attacking these seeds of selfishness throughout the entire letter. In chapter one, he points out envious preachers who seek selfish ambition. In chapter two, verse three, he commands, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In chapter two, verse 14, he prohibited all grumbling because every complaint starts with I, I, I. It's the worship of self. And God's word cries out to you this morning. Don't walk the path of self-worship. That's how enemies of Christ walk. Paul adds that this self-worship is further evidenced by their delight over shameful deeds. He continues in verse 18 to say, they glory in their shame. Those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ are those who boast in what God condemns. What their creator hates, the created loves. What God says is an abomination is what sinful man celebrates. Paul would show the height of man's depravity in Romans 1 verse 32 saying, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the hardness of heart that takes the entire month of June and requires the world to rejoice in sexual perversion and rejection of God's design and decrees. But that hardness of heart is not unique to those sinful acts. Listen to what Paul lays out in the verses right before. It says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. To glory in what is shameful is a characteristic of all sin, which means it's a characteristic of your sin and of mine. So Paul warns, don't delight in what is shameful. That's how people who are enemies of Christ walk. Paul then wraps up his spiritual assessment by revealing their focus. He finishes in verse 18 stating that those who walk as enemies of Christ are those who walk with minds set on earthly things. This is worldly living. It's a fixation with accumulation. It's craving all the material things and physical experiences that this life has to offer. This attitude of worldliness runs after possessions and pleasures. And do you know why? It's because those are the only acceptable sacrifices to lay on the altar of self-worship. 
This path seeks to befriend the world because it loves it. But James 4.4 asks and answers this clearly. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Those obsessed with earthly treasures, whose greatest preoccupation is with the cares of the here and now, they reveal their state before God as his enemy. 1 John 2.15 explains why. We're instructed, do not love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There are only two ways to live. Either you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or you worship self, and it will compel you to fall in love with the things of this world. And Paul says, don't walk as enemies of Christ who live only for this world. They boast in their sinfulness because they worship themselves, but their destination is damnation for eternity. It seems in this text that Paul's grief is not only because he knows the spiritual appraisal of this lifestyle to be bankrupt, but because these appear to be people who knowingly oppose the gospel. These people are not ignorant, nor are they uninformed. He says they are enemies, look in verse 18, of the cross of Christ. These were people who were not walking worthy of the gospel, like he said in chapter 1, verse 27. Rather, they live in a way that rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who died to forgive our sins. The one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There are some within this church who know Jesus as the Son of God. That he died for sins and was raised on the third day. And that he's coming back again. But there are some who have never turned from their sin and trusted in Christ to forgive them never believed in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. There are some who want Jesus as Savior, but they reject him as Lord because they want to serve themselves. There are others who want to wield the Lordship of Christ like a list of religious rules, just an effort to save themselves. Both are deadly errors, and both suffer from the symptoms diagnosed in verse 19. Their God is not Jesus. Their God is their belly. They glory not in Christ. They glory in their shame. They don't set their minds on the things above, but on the earth below. If this is you this morning, the good news is it is not too late. Christ commands you with all power and authority to repent and believe and says you will be saved. God is gracious and merciful, but will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. My friend, hide yourself in Christ, the perfect God-man, who bore your sins in his body on the tree so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul proceeds to instruct believers to walk a different path due to a present reality. 
Look with me at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The third instruction Paul gives is that citizens of heaven walk by faith in Christ's resurrection power. Paul contrasts the earthly mindset with a heavenly identity. He says our citizenship is in heaven. This identity and this idea of citizenship would have been meaningful, especially to the believers at Philippi. Philippi was a town that was full of retired Roman soldiers and was decreed to be a town by Caesar himself that was an official Roman colony. So to speak, it was Rome away from Rome. And the residents were to live in such a manner to rightly reflect the rule of Rome. Likewise, as followers of Christ, though we live here on this earth, we are citizens of another land. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is the place of your permanent residence. It's where your name is recorded in the book of life under the column, Citizen of Heaven. Heaven is your homeland. It's where you long to be, and it's where your loyalties lie. The reality of our destination radically changes our walk in the journey. For example, when I tell my children, go to the room, that's code for you're about to get a discipline because you either disobeyed or disrespectful or dishonest, right? They know what it means and they know where they're going. Shoulders hunched forward, head hung low, tears down the face as they walk with grief. But if I told my children, go to the van, we're headed to Blue Springs, they know in Blue Springs they've got an uncle, an aunt, a bunch of cousins, and Grammy and Granddad waiting for them. Their eyes widen, their shoulders tip forward, and their feet press back to launch into a dead sprint like a cheetah after a gazelle. I mean, it's go, go, go. They're excited about where they're going. Believer, let me ask you, do you know where you're going? Does the posture of your heart reflect the place you're heading For Paul, knowing the destination was propelling motivation for pressing on. But heaven was never merely a place for Paul. It was all about a person. Scripture tells us that heaven is where our fellow citizens who have finished the race now reside. It's where our inheritance, our treasure, our reward is. And all those truths point to this central reality. Christ is in heaven. Heaven is where Christ is seated. Look again at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no proper longing for heaven that excludes the Lord Jesus Christ. 
like a center stone, radiates beauty and light over all features of an engagement ring. So the glory of the person of Jesus Christ captivates and compels the Christian homeward. It's to heaven we fix our gaze because from there we eagerly and longingly anticipate the return of our King, the coming of our Lord and Savior. Jesus is the one who saves us from the end we deserve, destruction. And he is the Lord over all. The one who in chapter two, the Father supremely exalted The one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Believer, this is the authority and glory of our King. And he is coming for you. Listen to the comforting promise of your Savior in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. We longingly look to heaven in faith, trusting in the promised return of our mighty king. Believer, do you long for the return of your king? Does the moment where faith is turned to sight stir your affections towards joy? Or do the thoughts scarcely enter your mind? For the Christian, we know where we're going and we know who is coming. And Paul says, we know what he will do when he comes. Our Lord and Savior will come with resurrection power for his saints. Paul continues in verse 21 to remind us that it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, he says, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. For the believer, Christ is our Savior. His shed blood on the cross assures us of God's pardon, and it provides us with his own righteousness. Christ's death has saved us from the just wrath of God for our sins. But friends, Christ did not stay dead. He also rose from the grave, and his resurrection, life conquered death For us. And when he returns, he will come with resurrection power to save us from death itself. He will change your lowly earthly body to become an imperishable one, an immortal one. Paul would echo these truths in Romans 8, 23. He says all of creation cries out, but also he says we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, he says, the redemption of our bodies. Citizens of heaven are those who walk by faith in Christ's resurrection power. These truths need to be stapled and cemented on our souls because the truth is we know where we're going. We know 
who it is that's coming, and we know what he will do. Guess what that means? We know how the story ends. Friends, we know how the story ends. We will be with Christ forever. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And that means there is no more fear in life or death. That's why Paul has said throughout this letter, earlier in chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is simply gain. Paul's imprisoned for Christ. How does he say that? How does he say, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? He says, I want so much to know Christ and the power of his resurrection that I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And in love for these fellow sojourners, he tells them, follow my example. This is how we walk as citizens of heaven. It's by faith in the return of our king who will come with resurrection power for his saints. And because our Lord is the one who has all power to subject all things unto himself, we do know how the story ends. As our minds are focused on heaven, not as a singular place, but as the conglomerate of this idea of a place, a king, a kingdom, his rule and authority and what he will do, that means our hearts rejoice in the saving power of Jesus Christ. He is the one who will transform the way we live as we rejoice in all of him. If we're honest, though, the reality for most Christians is we think too little of heaven. And the thoughts we do have are either unbiblical or simply unrelated to Christ. We tend to hold tightly to this world because it's what we know best. And it's evident by our efforts to really fit heaven into sort of our life plans. Man, heaven sounds great, but I really would like to get married. I'd love to have some kids. Maybe we'll do that first if heaven could just wait a little bit longer. Maybe once I'm more established in my career and I've seen my kids grow up and, and they're married and kind of in a secure setting, then, then Christ can return. But, you know, I'd really love to see some grandkids and maybe some great-grandkids squeeze some cheeks. Man, that would be like heaven on earth. We get to the end of our days and we're upset that we have to leave our little kingdom here on earth. Our Lord teaches us in Matthew 6, He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. As believers, we can become so bewitched by our busy schedules we live as if heaven was the lowest priority on our list, like it's a footnote at the end of our novel. Now, we care more about ourselves. Rather than thinking that the eternal end with Christ is meant to display his power to save. Rather than setting our affections on the things above, we tend to become attached to the things of earth, 
And friends, we're not walking as citizens of heaven. When we have no delight, no longing for future resurrection, we will get caught up in the material that passes away. We become self-indulgent. We become self-centered. Our faith is weak and our frustration is sky high. We continually crave the comforts of this life. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not be so. The Puritan Richard Baxter, Baxter knew that those who seek earthly comforts were really actually the most uncomfortable people on earth. He said this, a heavenly mind is a joyful mind. This is the nearest and truest way to live a life of comfort and without this you must need be uncomfortable. Can a man be at a fire and not be warmed or in the sunshine and not have light? Can your heart be in heaven and not have comfort? On the other hand, he says, what could make such a frozen and uncomfortable Christian but living so far as they do from heaven? Oh, Christian, get above. Believe it, that the region of heaven is warmer than this earth below. Our unfamiliarity with heaven is what makes a Christian dull and worldly. But some Christians fall into the trap of believing that there is such a thing as thinking too much about heaven. Maybe you've heard the phrase, they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Friends, this is a lie. And I hope you've seen this morning from our text and a multitude of passages, that is not how God instructs us to think. But there are some who think about heaven wrongly. They think of heaven as a place that is all about them, that fixes all their problems, that is meant to help them escape their problems, this broken world. But friends, this is the same self-centered, earthly mindset that seeks to use people and places and things to satisfy self. That is not heavenly thinking. The attitude of biblical heavenly mindset is not one of escape, but rather of endurance. The very next verse of chapter 4, verse 1 confirms it. Paul instructs these believers, therefore, stand firm in the Lord. John, John MacArthur writes in his book titled, titled The Glory of Heaven, saying, those who fix all their affections on the temporal realities of this passing world really are the true escapists because they vainly attempt to avoid facing eternity by hiding in the fleeting shadows of things that are only transient. Christian, don't hide behind the responsibilities of this life, focusing only on the temporary. Instead, walk as a citizen of heaven. Embrace this life as a stewardship given you by your king and press on toward eternity for his glory. In this world, there are only two ways to walk. And God's word instructs us how it is we as believers ought to walk. Believer, 
we know how the story ends. Heaven is our home, and Christ is our king. So walk with loyalty to your king and no other sovereign. Walk as citizens of heaven. Heavenly Father, our hearts delight in this truth as the psalmist does. Your word screams out to us that our heart and our flesh may fail. But you, Lord, are our portion forever. Lord, I pray for our church body that we would be those who walk as citizens of your kingdom. Free us from the entanglements of this world by fixing our eyes on our glorious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. You alone, God, are almighty with all power, and so we know how the story ends. And we rejoice that we will be with Christ forevermore, that he will transform this lowly body into a glorious body like his own. Give us an eager expectation of heaven. Give us faith that rejoices in all of Christ, that gives us wisdom to walk in this world in a way that is honoring to your great name. And Lord, for those who are destined for damnation, those who are on the path that leads to destruction, Lord, we plead that you would open their eyes, that you would give them, by grace, wisdom to see the path that they're on, and that they would turn and run to cast themselves on your mercy. You are a gracious God. You are a God who is steadfast in love, who has shown this love to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Save more, we pray, Lord, through the preaching of your word, through the singing, through the delighting, and all that you call us to do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.